Open your Bibles, if you would, with me to Romans chapter 8. If you remember, when we began this series, uh, we established a base camp, <laughs> as though we're hiking up the mountain. We're taking a number of hikes, six different hikes up the mountain. Today, we're going to take another venture out and up <laughs> onto this beautiful terrain called Romans chapter 8, Life in the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to look at the nuts and bolts of why it is that uh, I shared with you guys about Mr. Shattuck when I was 12 years old. And uh, actually, I was a good Mormon kid at the time. And uh, I just, I, I, he was my parents' landlord. And, and this, he, he was like just this boozing guy and just partying and living for the world and all of that. And then all of a sudden, there was just something way different about Mr. Shattuck. And he came to love God. He came to be filled with God's spirit. He really became a nice guy. I mean, as a little kid, I'm like, wow, Mr. Shattuck's not scary anymore. We're going to look at the nuts and bolts of that transaction this morning. What it is to be radically changed as God is conforming us to the image of his son as a Christian. We're going to look at what it is, what the earmarks are of life in the spirit. Also the earmarks of life in the flesh. Uh, so buckle up. <laughs> We've got a lot of ground to cover. Last week, we looked at what it is to be uncondemned. Remember, we looked at uh, that there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, beautiful passage at the end of Romans 7, where he's in a real nosedive, <laughs> talked about that, and where now he begins to apply the work of the Holy Spirit. And we see that there is actually a life that's worth living. We understand that we're plagued by indwelling sin and that that is a struggle with all of us as we go through our lives. But we don't need to, as, as people that belong to Christ, we don't need to obey that nature any longer. We saw that we're not eternally condemned by God. We saw that we're not practically condemned, that as we go through our lives daily and we know that we blow it, we know that we fall short. And yet being absolutely bathed in the grace of God, that that doesn't condemn us any longer because Jesus died for that. He died for the sins, my sins, past, present, future. See that we're no longer needing to walk in self-condemnation, a little dark cloud over our heads like we just, I just can't measure up. Like Paul, we see Paul in Romans 7. We looked at that and then we looked at verse 2, which tells us why. Because the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Uh, we talked about that at length. We'll look at that a little bit more as we go. Uh, I've got a, a chart that I'm going to put up in a little bit that <laughs> I revised about 94 times as I was preparing for this morning, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that. But we saw also that the law, the law of Moses in that sense, or the moral law that many people uh, will strive to live by, that it, it, it's powerless to change us. Understanding the standard doesn't necessarily give anybody the ability to follow it. Uh, and we looked at that, and, and we looked at God's answer to that, and that was to send his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Remember that, that he didn't come in, he, Jesus' nature was never fallen. He's fully God, fully man, 
But he did come with a human nature, not a sin nature, but God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh so that he could demonstrate a life that's worth living to God. And fulfill God's righteous requirement through the law would now be fulfilled in us through faith in Christ, not by us. Remember, it's not, it's not about that. It's that the law is fulfilled in us, not by us. So as we get to verses 5 through 11, which we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at a contrast between these two natures, the nature of Adam, we've talked about that, or the sin nature, our fallen nature, the old man, there's a lot of, and we'll look at a different, a lot of different aspects of that, and then the nature of spirit, the, the, the nature that God puts into us that is, he's the one who's responsible for the transaction. He's the one that's responsible for the, the radical change that comes about in our lives. I'm going to read through these verses, and then we'll come back, uh, talk about it a little bit, and then unpack them verse by verse. So, verse 5, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritual, spiritually minded is life and peace. Because their carnal mind is enmity, that means hostile, against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But if, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So what the apostle Paul is doing here in writing this letter to the church at Rome is he's drawing a stark contrast between two different kinds of life. There's a life which is dominated by the sinful human nature, uh, whose focus center is self. Uh, self's on the throne. And it, 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 interesting. The only one, the only law that, 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 that nature knows is its own desires. Uh, it takes what it wants, where it wants, when it wants. No real regard for others. It can look like that. But generally, there's a selfish motive at the core. In different people, this life in the flesh, it looks differently. Uh, it might be dominated or controlled by sinful passions. Uh, it might be dominated by lust. And that doesn't just mean sexual lust. It means lusting for that which one doesn't have. It might be dominated by pride, ambition. How many times have you heard of someone in business that because out of selfish ambition, has just ruined relationships. Had that happened to me? One of my own employees uh, broke into my desk and got a bunch of my rate sheets for corporate clients that I had. This is years ago. And then moved down the street and duplicated my business with just slightly lower rates. It cost a bunch of guys their jobs. And it was tough. Selfish ambition. Dominating people. Human nature, sinful nature. The main characteristic in the unregenerate or, or the carnal man is, is in being absorbed with the things that the human nature without Christ craves. That's at the center. That's at the core. That's what 
people who don't know Christ set their hearts upon. Then there's a life that's dominated by pneuma. That's the, the Greek word for spirit. The spirit dominated life, the spirit of God. As men and women live in the spirit, they live in Christ. We've talked about what it is to be in Christ, to find your identity in Christ. And yet there's also another component to that. And what that is, is the power that the Holy Spirit now brings into the hearts of those that belong to Christ to live for him. As he, as, as the spirit fills this person, it, 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 Christ fills this person. We'll, we'll see in, in this passage that the, the spirit of God and the spirit of Christ are interchangeable. Why? Because they are co-equal. They're separate persons, but it, in essence, they're God. It's the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ. In this person, the will is transformed into seeking God above seeking self. In this person, they become now, instead of self-willed, self-controlled, they become spirit-filled and Christ-controlled, God-focused. I want you to note that the two lives that Paul outlines here, as we get into the, the text, you'll see that they are going in diametrically opposite directions. The life that's dominated by the desires and activities of sinful human nature is on its way to death. And he uses that term. In the most literal sense, there's no future in it. Think about it. Uh, because in getting further and further away from God, that's where that person is headed. To allow the things of the world to completely dominate one's life, it's self-extinction. It's spiritual suicide. Because there is no end but, get, but death to the person that lives outside of Christ. By living outside of Christ, people make themselves totally unfit to stand in the presence of God. You have to be cleansed in order to stand in his presence. We don't have the ability to cleanse ourselves. We've been studying justification. You must be justified. You must be declared righteous in order to come into his presence. And this person has no interest in that at all. Therefore, by default, they're destined for death. They're hostile towards God. We're going to look at that in the text this morning. They resent his presence. They, re- they throw off any aspect of God's control in their lives. He's not a friend. He's an enemy. Sobering to note that no one ever wins that you can fight God all your life. You can push against God all your life, but you will never win that last battle because on the end of that, it's judgment. The spirit-controlled life, the Christ-centered life, the God-focused life is daily coming nearer to heaven, even while we're still on earth. So no sooner is Paul, I mean, he's going through, he goes through this whole thing, and we'll get into it in a moment, but he he goes through this, and then he realizes there's an inevitable objection to the things that he's saying, and it would sound something like this. You say that those who are spirit-controlled are on their way to life, but it's a fact that everybody must die. So what do you mean, Paul? His answer simply is that all will die because they're involved in the human situation. We are human. Sin came into this world and with sin came death. It's the consequence of sin. It's part of our existence. Inevitably, therefore, all people, unless we are raptured out of here, and I pray for that regularly, unless the Lord takes us and we're caught up to be with him in the air, as we're told in Thessalonians, that we will die. It's part of our existence. It's part of living on a sinful world. Death was never supposed to be part of it, but it came with the fall. But 
If we are spirit-filled, spirit-controlled, God-focused, we die to live again. Paul's basic thought here is that every Christian is one with Christ. When Christ died and rose again, those who are one with him are part of the fact that because when he conquered death, that we are part of that and that we have conquered death in him. We share the victory. Uh, the spirit controlled life, the people that belong to Christ, death is, it's, it's an inevitable transition. Uh, that once one is passed from this life, they immediately transfer to the next. So as we look at this in verse five, uh, Paul says, he's talking, he's going to get into talking about having a spiritual mindset. He says in verse five, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. That those that he's talking about here, he says, those who live according to the flesh, he's referring to unbelievers. Now, in verse 9, he's going to say, but you, and we'll get to that. Uh, that's where he switches from talking about unbelievers to talking to the church, talking to believers. And even then, he has some qualifiers, and we'll talk about it. But he's saying literally here, for they who habitually, that's the tense, live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Likewise, they who are constantly after the things of the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So in those who are unconverted, their concern is with the things of the flesh, with the things of the old nature, the fallen nature. Uh, they obey the impulses of the flesh. Uh, they live to gratify the desires of the flesh, the corrupt nature. They cater to the body. Uh, and in a few years, that body will return to dust. That's the way that it is. That's how it's set up. That's part of the existence of the person who lives away and apart from God. But as he gives a series of contrasts in this passage, he contrasts now with those who live according to the spirit. That is true believers. They're led of God's spirit and live for those things that are eternal, not temporal. They're occupied with things of the kingdom, such as the word of God, prayer, worship, wonderful worship service this morning, serving God. Those become the priorities of the heart that has been changed by God, that has experienced this radical change that we're looking at this morning. So as we get into verse six, he says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life. And peace. Now he's talking about the mind. How many times have you used the term, make up your mind? Have this week. Make up your mind, honey. <laughs> Notice he, you, you, I don't think I've ever said it, and you probably haven't either. You have never said, hey, make up your brain, will you? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. So what that, it begs the question then, just what is the mind? Because he's talking about being spiritually minded, being carnally minded, so what is this thing called the mind? We know it's not our brain. Here's a dictionary definition. It's the immaterial aspect or essence of a human being, that which confers personality, individuality, and humanity. In other words, it's your you. <laughs> it's that one that a moment ago probably said, well, what is my mind? Uh, scientists argue over the, the mind. The medical professionals debate about it. 
But the point is, is you have a brain in your head and it is a marvel. It, it's, it is a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful aspect of creation, more complex than any computer. And its potential is staggering. However, that three-pound hunk of protein in your head, <laughs> your brain, it doesn't have a favorite meal. It doesn't lean towards one political ideology over another. It doesn't prefer tall over short, have a favorite color, a favorite ball team. So those, are, those are the things of the mind. Now, to illustrate, I, I remembered my brother, just to, the difference here. Uh, my brother David, he was my next older brother. I have three older brothers. I was the baby. <laughs> anyway, he had a, unfortunately, when he was in his late 20s, he had a brain hemorrhage and, and nearly died. Spent about 10 months in a coma, and just as he was coming out of the coma, he had a major stroke. And his brain was severely injured. Recovering, as he recovered, as he became more lucid, and as he began to function uh, after a very long recovery, he was keenly aware of the malfunction in the organ that's called the brain. His mind understood that his brain was injured and he suffered. He had to take medication uh, to calm his mind. There's a difference. The mind is often, it's considered to be synonymous with the soul uh, or the self. Essentially, our minds are our essence. That's why we're different. And so I'm doing this. I want to lay some groundwork. We're going to get into a, a deal here in a minute. But I want you to understand there's a difference when he's talking about being carnally minded uh, it's the mental inclination of the fallen nature. It's where we go. It's where we live. When he talks about being spiritually minded, it's where we identify with Christ. And now the Holy Spirit living within controls our mind. He gets hold of our hearts. We talk about our hearts. It's, uh, the, the renewed man's heart is wonderful. <laughs> the fallen man's heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know it? So it speaks of death as far as present fulfillment, as far as the carnal man, uh, but also the destiny of the carnal man. When he talks about to be carnally minded is death. It's not just the destination. It's a way of life. The life of someone that's separated from God. It's a terrible type of death, even while they live. Uh, they've given themselves to a self-centered, uh, often lonely and hopeless existence. Uh, my daughter, years before she went to heaven, spent a great deal of time in the intensive care unit. And I learned just sitting in the waiting room of the intensive care unit, uh, I, I got to where I could identify pretty quickly the people that had hope and people that didn't. To be spiritually minded is to set one's mind on the things of the spirit. Uh, again, we'll talk about that more in the weeks to come because this entire chapter is devoted to that. But that's what it is. To be spiritually minded, you're setting your mind on the things of the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. The principle here in both is people will mindfully, methodically build their lives around that nature to which they adhere. If you don't belong to Christ, you will build your life around the carnal nature. The end of it is death. It's not my opinion. It's what God's word tells us and speaks. If you're spiritually minded, if you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, that's why Jesus said, yeah, there won't be a temple in Jerusalem that counts. I've moved that 
from being outside to being inside. And now as his temple, as his dwelling place, I'm going to build my life around the things that are important to him. I'm going to build my life around the things that that new nature entails. So as we look at this, I want to talk about, I'm going to get into interpretation here. I'm going to talk about a dichotomy versus a trichotomy. I know those are big words and we have to do, uh, we have to do classroom here for a bit. But a dichotomy is where you say that human beings are made up of two parts. There's the body and then there's the soul slash spirit. Trichotomy is body, soul, and spirit. That's where you say that man is made of three parts. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, we read, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. We're talking about sanctification here in Romans 8, what it is to be made holy, and, and the process of that, that we're engaged in. We have been made holy, and we are being made holy. We are being sanctified. Uh, he says, And may your whole spirit soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God's word tends to indicate that we are a trichotomy, that we are body, soul, and spirit. Now he has it switched up here. He says spirit, soul, and body. And I'm going to show you guys a slide here. Remember, we're talking about having spiritual tools. So we're going to go through this. We're going to work our our way through this chart. Uh, As I said, I I think I modified it uh, a couple of dozen times, but we want to, in order to get to, to, to arrive at wisdom, we want to learn, we want to gain knowledge, but we don't want to leave it there. We talked about this in our first study in, in Romans 8, where as we hike up the mountain, we need some tools to hike with, some spiritual tools. So knowledge, we're after knowledge, but we're not leaving it there because we don't want to just walk out of here full of head knowledge and that's it. Through that knowledge, we want to gain understanding into the ways of God as he's revealed in his word, not as he's revealed by me. And through that understanding of the ways of God now, we want to apply that to our lives and allow that to become wisdom. As we walk this out, we walk in wisdom. So looking at this chart, remember we talked about in in the beginning of this chapter, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see that in the top line there. On the left, I want you to understand, this is the unregenerate. This is the, this is the carnal man. This is the one that Paul is talking about here when he says to be carnally minded is death. That we are a trichotomy, and, and I'm going to teach it that way, because like I said, we read here in Thessalonians that that's what Paul was saying. That we are led by the appetites of our body. That, and, and when he talks about the body of sin, he's not talking necessarily about the physical body, but he's talking about that life outside of Christ. That person who is unregenerate, that person who lives according to the nature of Adam. So we're dominated by the flesh. Dominated by uh, the carnal mind. We know that in... Uh, chapter 5, we talked about being spiritually dead in Adam. And, and in Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What do you mean? I was alive. Spiritually dead. Our spirit is dead outside of Christ. We're carnally minded. We're self-willed. Our life is subject to the law and the law condemns us because we have not come under the grace of God. So therefore, our life is centered in works and deeds. 
We're dead in sin. That's the left side. Here's the radical change. Go to the center. See the cross. Through the cross. The new birth. Jesus with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 said, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, born from above is how that's literally rendered. You will not see the kingdom of God. You need to be born of the spirit. When we look at this and we look at how this applies to us, that this radical change through simple faith in the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that by believing that he took my sin, that he died for every thought, word, and deed that I have ever had or will have in the future, that now I am a cleansed vessel. Now I am a person that God can actually come in and inhabit my life. As we've been studying here in Romans, those of you that have been with us, uh, you've already gotten it, but those of you that haven't, we've been studying what it is to be justified, to be declared righteous, the righteousness of God put into my account in infinite measure. I cannot outsin the grace of God. We've been talking about the, the, the sanctification of God, that I have been sanctified, as I mentioned. I have been declared holy, really? And now I am being made holy daily as I go through and as I submit my life to him. Awesome transaction. Yeah, this is the stuff of a radical, radical change. On the right side, we see that we no longer live according to the law of sin and death. Through faith in Christ, now the law of the spirit of life has set me free from that. My spirit has been quickened. The Bible calls it regenerated. I have been regenerated. I have been, life has been given to me. God has quickened my spirit, made it alive. Now, the life that I live, I live in the spirit of God. When you look at the soul there, again, you could look at that as the mind or as the essence of who one is. This is how we retain our individuality. But there's a change, there's a shift. At the moment that I give my life to Christ, and I am made spiritually alive, I am no longer dominated by the lusts of the flesh. I am no longer dominated by carnality. I'm now dominated by the Holy Spirit. That's why, uh, you know, it's so important that people understand, just come. Give your life to Christ. You don't have to clean up your act. If you try to clean up your act to come to Christ, you're going to stay on the left side of this chart. You can't clean it up enough. You can't keep enough rules. You can't follow enough laws. It's solely on the basis of his grace. And that we go from being in this life of futility to being, as the Bible says, seated in the heavenlies with Christ. That he fills us to overflowing. I hear often people will say, I want more of God in my life. And I submit to you, it's not about that. You have been given all of God that you will get. It's about less of you. That's what John the Baptist said. He said, I must decrease so that he can increase in my life. So as we look at the right side of this, the law of the spirit of life, the spirit controlled life. You see where I've got body darkened, but it's not gone. We talked about that when we were talking about the flesh in an earlier study where uh, it is, we are to, in, in chapter six, verse 11, Paul says, reckon that, old body, reckon the deeds of the flesh to be dead. It's an accounting term. He says, just make it so. We still battle it. We'll talk about that. But that's not the, that's not the basis through which I'm regenerated in Christ. 
It's simply an act of God's grace through my simply trusting, believing that that transaction is for me. Powerful truths, powerful doctrines. But again, we don't want to leave it in the realm of doctrine. These are, these are absolutely central doctrines to what it is to be a Christian. But we don't leave it there. We apply these things to our lives and say, Lord, fill me. Just flood me with your Holy Spirit. Give me spiritual wisdom, insight, understanding. Give me a life that's worth living. We'll talk about some of the fruit of that as we go along. But now I'm spiritually minded. I want God's will in my life. I don't want my own will. I don't want to serve that lower nature. It tugs at me. It wants its way. And sometimes I, sometimes I yield. It's like Paul says in chapter 7. But the overarching, the overriding desire of my heart is I want to live for Christ. I want to live for his kingdom. I want to live a life that is so far above the cut. I can have peace going through terrible circumstances. I can, I can enjoy a love, the depth of love, that which I've never enjoyed, I've never understood. And it's a love that puts you more important than me because that's how Jesus loves me. That's how this all comes about because he loves us. We love him because he loved us first. See on the left, it says works and deeds, dead in sin. And then on the right, the, the, the counterpart to life in the spirit is faithfulness and fruit. That as we come to him, it's not about our works. It's about him producing fruit in us. We're no longer dead in sin. We're dead to sin positionally. And he's working that in our lives as we go. As we center our lives in the spirit, uh, we have the living hope of, of what we see in First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, God, in his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's in that living hope that we experience the life and the peace that Paul talks about in verse 6. He talks about life in the spirit. The product of that, life and peace. When he talks about life, he's talking about both our present life in Christ, lived in the power and in the presence of the Holy Spirit. But he's also talking about our eternal life. In John chapter 3, when Jesus with Nicodemus, again talking to him, he said, look, (laughs) for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, live on that side of that chart, but would have everlasting life. At the moment that we give our lives to Christ, at the moment that we understand that this transaction is being worked out in us, we begin our eternal life. As I mentioned, death is just a step in that life. When he talks about peace here in verse 6, again, there's a double meaning here. You're talking about peace with God at the front end of the transaction that we're talking about, repenting of sin, saying, God, I have lived my life away from you. And now I I realize the hole in my life. I realize the lack in my life. I, I realize that there's no power to live in my life. At the front end of that, when we give our lives to Christ, when we say, you know what? I'm turning from the old life and I'm embracing you, Jesus. Because I know there's no other way to live. And maybe I don't know all the details. I know very little, but I do know this, that you died for my sins. And not only that, you rose from the dead to give me power. The law could never do that. I could never have power in my life until the Holy Spirit came in. So now 
I have peace with God. I'm no longer destined to death. I'm no longer that person who is just living for myself, that's living this carnally minded life. I'm reconciled to God. As a result, I not only have peace with God, but I have available to me the peace of God. Powerful. Remember, uh, my wife was very, very sick one time and uh, she was in the hospital and they were doing surgery and I had no idea if she was going to live or die. She was that sick. And I was sitting in my truck in, my par- in the parking lot of the hospital weeping, crying out to God. Uh, I, and it was only a year after my daughter had gone to heaven and I was just, I can't do this again, Lord. And the Lord spoke to my heart in that moment there in my truck in the parking lot of the hospital. And he said, John, receive my peace. I said, but, but she's really, she's really bad off. And it was, it was as though he was sharing, saying to me, why do you think I call it the peace that passes understanding? If I give you peace according to your understanding, all you're going to do is continue to argue with me. He knows me pretty well. Just receive my peace. So being a person who knows that I have peace with God, he was offering me the peace of God, the peace that passes understanding, bypasses our brain. I don't know why. I'll tell you what, though. I got out of that truck with a profound peace. Circumstances hadn't changed, but there was a change in me. There was a shift in me brought about by the working of the Holy Spirit in my heart, in my life. Both of these, both aspects of this peace are are a result of being in right relationship to God, to Christ. So as you get into verses uh, 7 and 8, I'm going to reread verse 6. We're going to talk about the old nature being an enemy of God. In verse 6 again, he says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity or hostile against God. It's not able to subject, it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So the reason death is the result of being carnally minded is because the old nature is literally hostile towards God. Warring parties, yeah, it's hostile. And yeah, you might be a nice person, but you still, if you're throwing off the work of God in your life, you're hostile towards him. That's why Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. There is no fence. So don't try to sit on the fence and be a little bit in the world, a little bit in Christ. It doesn't work that way. He says, because the carnal mind is hostile, literally an enemy of God. Look around. Not not in here. <laughs> saying, hey, look at it. <laughs> a couple of you went. I'm like, no, 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 no. I mean, look around in a larger sense. Look around at, at our world. Look at... Look at the political landscape. Look at the cultural landscape. Look at what's going on out there. You want to talk about hostility towards God? Enemies of God. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. You're a friend of God. He's talking about this this whole thing about being hostile towards God. I got to thinking about Cain and Abel. And and. Uh, that's, this is Cain and Abel. They typify the flesh and the spirit in that sense. Uh, remember, if you in Genesis 4, he talks about both Cain and Abel worshipped God and they brought their sacrifices. From Abel, he brought a blood sacrifice from the firstborn of his flock. Cain brought a grain offering from some of his crops. Rather unremarkable. The Bible doesn't tell us why God was against Cain, we can assume. But Cain's heart, nonetheless, was not right. 
And God rejected his sacrifice. He said, I don't want it. I don't want it. God then warns him. He says, look, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. You have the ability. You have, you have the will to get this right. Cain's heart was not right when, he reject, when God rejected the sacrifice. Uh, and God gave him the opportunity to do the right thing. Cain would not subject himself. That's what we're seeing here in Romans. Nor would he. And then he went ahead, killed his brother. And when he did, he brought judgment upon himself. I love these vignettes, these pictures in the Old Testament that illustrate New Testament truth. Verse 8. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. How can you please God if you are an enemy of God? That's essentially his point. There's also an overarching principle, right? There are principles put forth in God's word, and then there are principles that govern the principles. Those are called overarching principles. A little (laughs) Bible study lesson for you. You look for overarching principles because they do govern the, the principles that are under them. This is an overarching principle, and it's concerning all of humanity who are outside of Christ. If you are in the flesh, you cannot please God. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how much you gave at the office. I don't care how much you volunteered at the orphanage. It doesn't matter in God's economy. You either belong to Christ or you don't belong to Christ. And that's what it is to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read, without faith, it's impossible to please him. It's not possible. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I love that. What's my part? Seek him. What's his part? Empower me. For those in the flesh like Cain, if they come their own way, and this is the way of religion, the flesh's way, God cannot and will not accept them. You can have all the externals in order. You could be a, a... a great philanthropist. You could live an upright, moral life, even be a religious person. We looked at all of that when we looked at the wrath of God in chapters one through three, where he, he swings the pendulum from <laughs> abject sinners that are out there just doing all kinds of debauchery to people who are moralists, who live a good, upstanding moral life. And he says condemnation is the same. If you've never been to the cross, big picture, it's like arranging chairs on the Titanic. You could be committed to all of the the help and all of the stuff. And I'm not saying those are bad things, but they'll never get you to God. Here's what counts. John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Here's the point. You've got to go to the cross. Overly simplified? Yeah. Narrow-minded? Absolutely. There's one way. Jesus said, I am the way. The singular way, not a way. I am the truth and I am the life. That's the life we're talking about here. Verse 9, Paul begins to talk about the indwelling spirit. And we'll spend more time on this in future studies because there's a lot to come in Romans chapter 8. He says, but, (laughs) not that word, but you... This is where he shifts gears and he's no longer talking about the unregenerate man, the carnal man, the, the uh, carnally minded person. He's talking, to, he's talking, to, remember he's talking to the Christians in Rome. 
He says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Here's the qualifier. If (laughs) indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Doesn't get any more blunt than that. Uh, It's just, he just spells it out. There is absolutely no mistaking here. You know, many times in my life, because people will say, well, is that person a Christian? And usually I've realized that usually when I say, I don't know, it's because I don't see the fruit of the spirit in their life. I see maybe a profession, but he makes it very clear here. If somebody doesn't have the Holy Spirit, it doesn't belong to God. I spent years in this place, as I mentioned, growing up in the LDS church, learning the way of religion benefited me nothing. So he turns here from speaking from unbelievers to uh, about unbelievers to those in the church at Rome. And I want you to notice, too, that he goes from the plural you where he says, but you are not in the spirit or in the flesh, but in the spirit. He goes to the singular you. And he says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ. Because it's not about being part of a group. Yes, we're called to assemble together and we don't want to forsake that. That's clear instruction from God's word. But it's not about being part of a group. It's about you and I personally. It's about a personal relationship with Christ. Individually realizing that his love is poured out on my life, on your life. Verse 10, he says, and if Christ is in you, And the body is dead because of sin. Going back to that chart, if he is in you, then that whole left side that we talked about, it just doesn't exist. From his stand, yeah, we wrestle. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But he says, look, you have been delivered from that. You have been delivered from death. That's why when Paul, at the end of Romans 7, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he goes on to tell us who will. And that's what we're looking at now is who does. Wonderful linkage in these passages. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Here's what he's getting at. Through the ministry of the spirit, Christ actually takes up residence within the believer, within our hearts. And he really does. Think about it, guys. It's amazing to think that the same Jesus that we read about in the gospels is the same one that dwells within us. The same one that opened their understanding there on the road to Emmaus is the same one that opens our understanding to his word and to his ways. That's remarkable. And it's true. When we remember that our bodies are subject to death because of sin, we understand that it's not any longer about us, but about him dwelling in me. Paul says, it's not I, but Christ in me is my hope for glory. When Jesus indwells the believer, two things intersect. I'm going to talk about that for a minute. First, in verse 10, literally it says, the body is subject to death because of sin. Pretty clear. Speaking of dying to sin, as I mentioned, not dying in sin. That's the old man. That's the carnal man. Speaking of dying to sin, our bodies will die. But for believers, that death will lead to resurrection. The dominion of sin was broken at the cross. It was nullified of no effect now on my life. We experience victory over death because of the empowering presence of Christ in his spirit. 
yet, to be honest, nevertheless, we still struggle against besetting sin. In Hebrews chapter 12, the, the writer there, not Paul, <clears throat> maybe, the writer there says, let us cast off the weights and the sin which so easily beset us and run the race that is set before us with endurance. There's besetting sin. That is that old nature, that lower nature I talked about. It's like being chained to a corpse. And we drag that thing around. That's true. We do battle between the flesh and the spirit uh, in our hearts. The body is subject to death because of sin. It's dying to sin, not dying in sin. We struggle against sin and temptation, don't we? As a result, we still live on a fallen planet. We'll talk about that in two weeks when we talk about the earth itself being subjected to futility. Rest assured, what God's word presents is that we live on a fallen planet and death is part of it. And even for us who have been regenerated, for us who have been imparted life, the life of the spirit, physical death is part of it. It's part of this life. And yet... The second reality that we see here in verse 10 comes into play. The spirit is life because of righteousness. While death reigns over our bodies, there dwells within us a new power. As the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God himself performs a radical change. That's why I titled this study Radical Change. He does a radical change within us, filling us with a new life, the very life of God. That's why it's so hard. This is free, not in my notes. That's why it's so hard for when people become unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. You have one person whose life is just headed for death and who is carnally minded, even if they're a, air quotes, a nice person. And you have one person who has got a completely different nature that they're obeying. And Paul says, he says, what communion has light with darkness? Be careful. An opportunity to be involved in a business with someone who's not a believer that uh, it was very tempting as a developer. And uh, I could have stuck to my guns and said, I want 20% or whatever. And and God just spoke to my heart and said, nope, you'd be marching down the wrong road. Be careful. He says, the spirit is life because of righteousness. While death reigns over our bodies, there dwells within us a new power. Again, God has given us this new life, this new nature. John 3.16 tells us that eternal life, it's not, again, it's not a future reality. It's a present gift, possession. It's already begun. In verse 11, we read, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This answers the inevitable question, the question that I mentioned as we were getting started. So what about this life? You're talking about life. What about the fact that we die? And Paul's response that physical death is not the end of it. Resurrection is coming for each one of us that belong to Christ. Think what he's saying here in this verse. It is the spirit of God who carries us from this life to the next. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. To be honest, uh, you know, I, I, as I get older, I think more about death. I think all of us do. <laughs> A couple are going, yeah, I know. 
We do. I mean, it, we're aware, more aware. I'm more aware of my, my mortality than I was when I was 22 going 90 miles an hour down a very narrow street. And that's true. But you know, I, and I don't fear death. And I'll be really honest with you. I fear dying. I don't like the thought of going through the process. It does not sound fun. Especially if it's a prolonged thing and all of that. Or there's just a moment. <laughs> My wife and I will probably have a talk on the way home. What are you talking about that? But it's true. Folks, death has lost its sting. We don't have to fear it. What he says here is relevant in each one of our lives. Because each one of us, there's a date out there. For some, maybe sooner, for some later. But there's a date out there. Unless the Lord, again, unless he catches, we're caught up together with him in the air. We can confidently face death. Yeah, and it's okay to not be wild about dying. (laughs) I think you'd be kind of nuts if you were. It's like, oh yeah, I can't wait to... It's a necessary transition though. Truly, from a biblical standpoint, from a spirit-filled standpoint, you're simply graduating. You're simply transferring from this domain to the next. When Jesus was standing before Pilate and Pilate said, are you a king? (laughs) He said, you're right. Jesus said these words. He said, my kingdom is not of this realm. And the word there for realm, it literally means to stand and to be pointing in a sort of a semicircle around you. He said, my kingdom is not from here. It's not, not part of this realm. If it were, my people would overwhelm you and you would not be in management, Pilate. Very loose paraphrase, but that's essentially what he said. We transfer realms. We transfer from this place to the next. I remember, uh, and, and I occasionally talk about when my daughter went to heaven because it was such a profound thing for me. But I remember one day talking with her husband on the phone. And what he had to say to me transformed my grief. I said, Matt, how you doing? He said, I'm doing good. I said, how you really doing? You know, you asked twice when you want to kind of get below the surface. And he said, John, I'm doing good. And he said, my faith is real. And about this time, I'm getting teared up thinking, oh, he's got something to say. And and the Holy Spirit was just taking his words and driving them into my heart. He said, I've never once questioned God. Why did you take her so young? She was only 32 when she died. But every day, I thank him for giving me seven and a half years with the girl of my dreams. And I realized in that moment, he said, look, my faith is real. I know that this isn't the end of it for her. And it wasn't. And yeah, it was hard. It was difficult. And grief is a real thing. It's not one size fits all. There's, I read this book, The Five Stages of Grief, whatever it is. It's like, no, they're all jumbled up. <laughs> it's not like you go from one to the next to the next. That's not how it is. And, and we grieve. I mean, we're human. And that's part of our human experience. Death is part of this life. However, you don't have to fear it. You're changing addresses. You're going into the kingdom that Jesus spoke of. When he said, it's not, it's not here. It's not this realm. That's the real realm. The Bible tells us this life is a vapor. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to close with this, has some things to say about it. He said, you know, uh, the, evidently the Corinthians had asked him about the resurrection. There is, and there was a lot of false doctrines going around in the first century pertaining to that. Even the guys that Jesus dealt with, some of them believed in the resurrection, the uh, but the Sadducees did and the Pharisees did, and, and it was always a debatable issue. And so he's spelling it out to the people at the church in Corinth. He says, so when this corruptible, 
That's what we're talking about. Our mortal bodies, when this corruptible puts on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. That's what we're talking about here. To be carnally minded is death. And the strength of sin is the law. We've studied that here in Romans where we read that, that when the law was revealed, that sin abounded that it, it, because it illustrated what sinfulness is. So he says, the sting of death is sin and the strength of the law uh, of sin is the law. But is that word again. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. We don't have to live a life subjected to futility. We don't have to live a life where there is no glorious end. Because what he's talking about here, guys, he goes from justification here in Romans, and then he goes from justification, justification being the righteousness of God put onto my account so that I am declared righteous, I am declared right with God. And when he goes from justification, he goes to sanctification, which is mean I am being made, I am being conformed to the image of his son. We'll look at that as we get further into chapter 8. He goes from justification to sanctification. Here, he's talking about glorification. When we go to be with the Lord of glory, when he shares that with us, when he shares what he spoke of in the gospel of John in chapter 12, where he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many dwelling places. And when I've done that, I'm going to come back. and I'm going to get you that you can come and you will be with me forever. I remember standing on a rail, railing uh, in, in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. I was at the synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus often taught. And I was looking out at the ruins there. And Peter's house was over there. This big gaudy thing that Catholic Church put up. But that's fine. It gave you a good view down at the glass floor in this place. But I'm there at the at the synagogue. And I'm looking out over these ruins. And I remember there was all of these lines of square pillars. And, and they were about waist high or so. Uh, and... And I'm looking at them, and then I see in this, it was like a box of these square pillars, I see a row of round pillars. And I asked uh, the Messianic Jew that was uh, guiding our trip, I said, what did, what's that? And he said, well, that's what happened when the bridegroom took a bride, that they would be betrothed, they would get engaged, and then he would go back to his father's house, And he would add on. He would go and prepare a place for his bride. And as I was looking at this, and I'm thinking, God, this is just so beautiful. This is so awesome. I'm I'm seeing a living picture of what you told your guys that you're going to do for us. In my father's house are many dwelling places. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come back and take you, my bride, to be with me forever. Awesome stuff. I love the word of God. And I could keep going, but we're out of time. If you don't know Jesus, I want to encourage you to transact with him. Come out of that left column that we were looking at. Understand you got to go through the cross. Confess your sins. Ask him to forgive you for your sins. He'll cleanse you and he'll receive you into his glorious kingdom. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this passage here in Romans. Lord, I just, my heart just feels overwhelmed at the privilege to teach through this and to know, Lord, that these are relevant truths for us, that we can actually take them and put them on in our lives. And we can only do that, again, through the empowering of your Holy Spirit. So I pray, Father, for each of us, Holy Spirit, come. Dwell with us, dwell in us, work in us, conform us to the image of your Son. We give ourselves afresh to you. We pray that you would do that work, that you would perform that divine surgery. Meet us where we're at in whatever that is, whatever that looks like. We pray that you would meet us and do that work.